when he says my name again. His voice limbed with desperation. Isabel, he says. And then they're ecstatic. In frustration, I press the phone harder against my ear, trying to make out the words. But I can't understand a damn thing. Then his voice comes clear again. Keep her safe. Max, I can hardly hear you. Keep who safe? Tell me where you are, I say. But it's too late. I'm talking to an empty line. I try to call back, but all I hear is the message I've gotten for the past seven years. The number you've dialed has been disconnected or is no longer in service. I call over and over, but the result is the same. Gradually I become aware that I am still kneeling in the dirt, tears spilling down my face. In the middle of an archaeological dig I am supposed to be overseeing. One by one, the blurry faces of my grad students swim into view. Jake is staring at me, puzzled and alarmed. Dizzy, half-blind, I get to my feet. Excuse me, I mumble. And then I do something I've never done before. Not in five years of graduate school and two years of teaching. I walk right off the dig. Isabel. I can hear Jake's steps behind me, crunching on gravel. Can hear him calling my name, wanting to know what's wrong. But how can I possibly explain? I make myself turn and lift a hand in reassurance, hoping my sunglasses hide the tears that sting my eyes, unbidden. I hear my voice, impossibly even, say that everything is all right. I just need a few minutes alone. That he is in charge until I get back. Even through the haze that clouds my vision, I can tell Jake is unconvinced. So I attempt to smile. Apparently this is less than successful, because he winces. His mouth opens, but before he poses a question I have no idea how to answer, I fumble in my pocket for the keys to the van and manage to open the door. Moving as if in a dream, I settle behind the wheel and shut the door between us with a vague feeling of regret. This is not how a supervisor ought to behave. But right now I can't muster the energy to care. Hands trembling. I back the van out of the sight and pull onto the road, ignoring the bone-rattling thump that ensues when one of the wheels sinks into a pothole. The last thing I see is Jake standing at the edge of the parking lot, hands shoved in the pockets of his khaki shorts, staring after me with a look of total bewilderment on his face. I have no idea where I'm going, and after a few minutes it becomes clear to me that I really shouldn't be behind the wheel at all. I can hardly drive in a straight line, much less watch out for traffic. The fact that we are in Barbados, where people drive on what I still think of as the wrong side of the road, doesn't help. And so I pull over at the first place I see. Cutter's Deli, a restaurant that proudly advertises itself as the purveyor of number one rum punch. Harboring the vague notion that a drink will calm me down, I stagger out of the car. But as I make my way toward the porch, logic asserts itself. I can't 
get drunk. I'm working. What the hell am I thinking? I look back at the car, then at the restaurant. The shaking has resumed. A head-to-toe trembling that makes my teeth clack together and my knees buckle. With the exception of the day my mother vanished. Six years before I lost Max. I have never felt so alone. In desperation, I imagine that my closest friend, Ryan, is here with me. I hear his deep voice telling me to focus. Concentrate. If you're thinking, his voice says, you can't be feeling. Look around. Tell me what you see. All right, I say aloud. I force myself to look at cutters, to truly take in the...